Good morning. Good to see you all. The, uh, it's great to be inside. It was very cold outside at 9 a.m., so I'm grateful to be here in the um, beautiful Phillips Event Center. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I just want to start with a very common sense and very real and honest observation that sometimes people uh, with religious commitments can be difficult to be around. Sometimes people that are, are jealous for God can be jerks. And I speak out of personal experience. I um, did not have a very meaningful connection with God in, when I was in high school. A lot of my self-worth was kind of wrapped up in my friends and the, the terrible things we would do for fun. And God really saved me. And I mean that. God saved me from uh, destructive and compulsive behavior. And in my, I, when I think back of those first few months when I was really following Jesus for the first time, my heart was overflowing with gratitude. And I was very in touch with the truth that God was doing these things in my life that were outrageously undeserved. It was amazing, but very quickly, and I mean like within a matter of months, my sheer wonder about what God had done disappeared. And I started becoming very conscious that I was a serious, committed Christian, and that there were a lot of other Christians who were not trying as hard as I was. And so within, I'm not exaggerating, within nine to ten months, I started becoming a judgmental, joyless person. I was very jealous for the things of God, but again, I was like a jerk, not a fun person to be around. Now, look, my story is my story. You may not relate to it, and I do not think that a kind of severe austere form of Christianity is characteristic of Church of the Cross. But I do think that all of us, whether we've been following Jesus for three months or for 30 years, can relate to this tension. And the tension is this. On the one hand, you bear God's image. And so you bring God joy just by being you. And God loves you just because of who you are. There are no strings attached. That is extremely true. On the other hand, There are strings attached. There are rules. There are commandments. God has given you a vocation, and God expects you to embrace your vocation. And so there are these two impulses at the very center of our faith. There's unmerited love and acceptance, but then there is the very real reality about God's call and God's commands. Those two things exist in tension. Of course, they don't on paper. In practice, those two things exist in tension. So my hope this morning is I'm going to look at this promise of the new covenant that Jeremiah makes, 500 years-ish before the birth of Jesus. And then when you hear new covenant, think of a, a, a way of relating to God. Jeremiah is making this promise, a new way of relating to God is coming. And uh, so what I want to do is look at this promise and what it means, and specifically how the new covenant resolves this tension in our faith. So three points. I want to talk about covenants in general, and then I want to look at the new covenant in particular, and then third and finally, uh, stealing language from Peter last week that I really liked, uh, life under the influence. So first, covenants in general. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Now, it is hard to overemphasize how central The idea of a covenant is to understanding the story the Bible tells. God deals with human beings through covenants. 
The Bible does not imagine a situation where God deals with human beings apart from the mechanism or the structure of a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? You probably have some intuitive sense of what a covenant is just based on, you know, it's related to marriage, but just for the sake of simplicity and clarity, let me define a covenant for you, okay? A covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two people. And so what a covenant is, is a relationship that's both profoundly personal and intimate and legal and contractual. A covenant relationship is not just based on feelings. It is two parties, oftentimes two people, but you can two parties who make vows, our promises. We are going to do and not do certain things in this relationship. And in some ways, a covenant relationship is so intimate, is so personal because it's not just based on feelings. There's a durability and an objectivity to it. And to form a covenant, two people forego a measure of their own independence. We can, of course, imagine this in the context of marriage. When you get married, you're saying, I am going to not relate to other members of the opposite sex. Like, I'm going to relate to you. I'm foregoing a measure of my independence. But that mutual sacrifice, that foregoing of prerogatives and rights, enables trust and durability and security. Now, there are lots of different types of covenants human beings can make with each other. Marriage is the most prominent, but there are lots of other kinds. I'm not going to talk about any of that. I want to talk about the covenants that God makes with human beings. Adam and Eve, Noah, Moses, Abraham, David. God makes covenants with human beings. But the first thing I want to say here at the outset is this. Uh, And the reason why covenants are so significant is because covenants hold two things together, law and love. By making a covenant, God makes promises and God issues commands. And you cannot have one without the other. When God draws near to people in Scripture, God does not simply say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, God says, I do love you, but we're going to be in a relationship. And there's some give and take to that. I want you to do certain things. I want to partner with you, and I want you to respond in a particular way. Circumcise your kids, for example. There is, okay, do you guys hear that? No, I'm kidding. The idea being is that there is law and love being held together. There's no love without law, and there is no law without love. And therefore, this is the really important point of my first point, that the God revealed in the Bible, that's the God of Isaac and Jacob and Deborah and Esther, that God is multidimensional. God is complex. God is not simple in that sense. What do I mean by that? Well, because there are certain people who live as if God is simply a collection of a bunch of rules. Are there, are there, no one would ever say that, of course, but there are people whose spirituality, it's as if God is simply a, a sovereign to whom we must submit. There are other people who live as if God is a grandparent who just says, you know, have dessert whenever you want. Things are great. God is complex. God is not simple like that. God is as concerned with justice as he is inclusion. God is as concerned with righteousness and holiness as he is with mercy and compassion. And covenants, the idea that God relates to us through covenants, shows us that for God, law and love are held together in this creative, beautiful tension. And when we enter into a covenant with God, 
We are, of course, saying, God, you love me just for me. And that is amazing. I don't have to earn or, or prove my worth to you. But we are also saying, God, I will do certain things. I will honor your commands. I will walk with you through life. Covenants show us the, the multidimensionality, if that's a word, to who our God is. Okay, um, moving on to point two, uh, I think we have to consider, based on what I just said, well, what happens when human beings like, don't end up, don't hold up their end of the deal? God invites us into a covenant, and God says, I want you to live a certain way and do certain things. And what happens when human beings do not do them? That is the situation described by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. He says that the nation of Israel, their ancestors, broke the covenant that God had made with them. God promises to make a new covenant because the old covenant had been fractured. So let's look at this new covenant in particular. And, and the first thing I have to say, and this is, again, going to get a little abstract, but just stay with me. The Bible almost seems to be of two minds when it talks about the conditions attached to covenants. And this is what I mean. There are literally hundreds of Bible passages that go something like this. If you honor me, if you keep my commands, I will bless you. I will prosper you. If you honor me, if you keep my commands, then I will honor you. Then I will bless you. What is that? That's a conditional statement, right? I want to do these things for you, God says, but it kind of hinges on like you owning up your end of the deal. There are a lot of Bible passages that if you just read straight through, that's exactly the conclusion that you would draw because that's what it says. There are also passages where the promises attached to the covenant seem much less conditional. In fact, they seem unconditional. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, Judges chapter 2 verse 1 is a very particularly clear example in this regard. God says, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So which is it? We got to obey and honor God because if we don't, we are not blessed or God will never break his covenant with us. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, but you can, those two things are not mutually exclusive. And I would say, yes, that's true in the context of a term paper. But in real life, it becomes very difficult to balance those two things. It becomes very difficult to balance, well, there's grace, and we know that that's central, but we also have to obey, and, and that's important too. And I think the, the interesting question is not how do those get reconciled on paper, but how do you balance those in a life, right? Um, because I think we all know of people that sit on opposite sides of the spectrum, right? I heard this expression uh, this week that I think is relevant. It's germane. It's, uh, what is it? Uh, it's people whose consciences are screwed on too tight, right? And it's like, I'm sure it's an Enneagram number or two. It's the idea being that there are some people who are deeply aware of their own faults. They set ambitious goals for themselves. They have very high standards. And when they don't meet them, it like kills them. They feel very deeply the pain of their own imperfections. And those types of people, are, they're quick to despair. It gets very hard and, and not enjoyable to live like that or to be around people like that, frankly. There are also people whose consciences are screwed on too loose, right? There are people who do not keep their commitments. There are people who make promises and then break their promises. 
There are people that you just have the undeniable impression that they were never told no as a child. Those people are also not enjoyable to be around, right? There are, and like, I'm not saying those two things are morally equivalent. My point is that this question about, you know, is it, is it law or is it love? It's not just theology. It's not an abstraction. It actually has a lot to do with how we live and how we live with other people. How do we find this balance between promise and command? Because both are real. Both are important. Now, again, what I'm trying to say is that the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 points us forward because it brings law and love together in a really interesting way. And let me try and show you how. First, uh, there is law and this new way of relating to God that we as Christians just kind of assume, but was in fact a very crazy idea. There is law. God says, I will put my law where I will put it in your mind and I will write it on your heart. So in the, this new way of relating to God, there is law. And on the one hand, law in the new covenant is intensified because it's internal. It's not just about adherence to external standards or it's not just about outcomes. How you feel about what you're doing matters a lot to God. Think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, or St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, look, you can do all the good in the world you want. You can give away all your money to the poor. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. So law is actually in some ways heightened in this new way of relating to God because you can't just like fake your way through it. But at the same time, that God would write his law in our hearts and in our minds to me signals that there is a promise here about the transformation of desire. That we're not just chasing after the right means of doing something, but there is something that's going to come up from within us that will enable us to walk in God's ways with a relative freedom and ease. And I think we all know when you're around someone who's like that, you can tell the difference. Like this person is not doing the right thing because it's the right thing. They're doing the right thing because they genuinely want to. Let me give you an example that could not be more relevant. Uh, I was talking to a friend from out of state this past week who um, we were talking about the vaccine rollout in his city. And he said that, oh yeah, I was able to get an appointment because he's like pretty good on computers. But you know, I was technically kind of jumping the line. So I'm just going to wait until it's my turn. That's a pretty admirable thing, right? Of course. But um, I I realized none of you were on the call, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. But the way that he said it is really what matters. There was something very like new covenant about his approach because it wasn't self-aggrandizing. You know, what's the phrase? Humble brag. Like there wasn't this, like he wasn't trying to like showcase his virtue, nor was he bitter or angry or moralizing about people procuring the vaccine through more ethically ambiguous loopholes. And that meant something to me because I am one of those people. But he just didn't have this judginess. You know, oftentimes the people that do the right things all the time are like the least fun people to be around because they're very clear that they're doing the right thing all the time. That was not his vibe. It was like open-handed and loose. And like he was doing the right thing, but he was doing it because he genuinely wanted to be doing it. And he wasn't begrudging or, or counting, you know, weighing other people's merits. It was very, it was beautiful. It was the law of God written on his heart. So that's law. It's, it's intensified, but it's easy and it's natural and it's, it's free. Second, love. Remember what I'm saying in the new covenant, law and love kind of cohere in this new way. 
And what God says in Jeremiah 31 is he that will forgive our sins. In fact, he will remember our sins no more. And it's that second promise that I really find astounding. Because in the old covenant, the old way of relating to God, your sins could be forgiven. It was through sacrifice, literal sacrifice. And the sacrifices were endless because human beings perpetually sin. So there's never a, a, there's never a, a world where there are not sacrifices being offered in the old covenant. But here, God says, I will remember your sins no more. It's not that particular transgressions are being forgiven. It's like the, the power and the weight of our sins is cleared away definitively. There's a liberation promised. And what I think God is saying is that it's not just that I'm going to look past your mistakes. We are going to be reconciled in a new way. What does the promise say in this passage? Everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. There is this proximity, a binding relationship in the new covenant. And those two things, law, doing the right thing just because it's the right thing, because you want to, and proximity to God are, are related, right? When, when the new covenant invites us into this binding, loving relationship with God, and that in and of itself fuels this obedience, at least on paper. That's, how, that's the idea of how it is going to work. Now, a couple more points is uh, how is the new covenant formed, this new way of relating to God. Because remember what I said at the very beginning. When you form a covenant with someone, both parties are foregoing a certain amount of independence. There's a vulnerability on both sides. And we know as human beings, kind of, what it would mean to enter into a covenant relationship with God. We would say, God, I'm going to take your law, I'm going to take your word seriously. I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to forego independence and autonomy and say, your way, Lord, is my way. But it's less intuitive to think, well, what does God do to enter into that covenant with us? How does God forego his independence? How does God be vulnerable? How does God abandon his own prerogatives to make it possible for us to be in a covenant relationship together? Well, of course, you know that we do communion around here every week, and there is a moment in the communion liturgy that Peter will do in just a couple minutes where we say, that Jesus Christ, on the night before he was betrayed, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his friends gathered around the table, and what did he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I like to imagine, well, what were the disciples thinking in that moment? Because the disciples knew this passage from Jeremiah, and so a light bulb must have gone on. Oh my gosh, this new way of relating to God with law and love being reconciled is being made possible tonight, this very night. And Jesus is saying, yes, right here, right now, I, God in flesh, am going to forego my independence. I am going to be vulnerable. I am going to give myself to you in my betrayal and arrest and torture and ultimate deny, uh, demise. I am giving myself to you so that you can form a covenant with me. The language that the New Testament after the gospel, the most common phrase, at least in the Apostle Paul, to, to describe and think about the significance of Jesus' death, 
he uses the language of a curse. Now think of Galatians chapter three. Jesus was cursed for us. Now it's very strong language, but it's language taken directly from this world of covenants. Because in covenant relationships in the Old Testament, if you obeyed the covenant, you were blessed. But if you disobeyed the covenant, you were cursed. There was a a curse attached to not fulfilling your end of the deal. What Paul says is that Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion, was cursed. What is he saying? This is what he's saying. Jesus unreservedly said yes to the will of God. He was the one human being who held up his end of the deal, but he was cursed. He received the punishment for not obeying the covenant, even though he was the only person who did. Why? Well, of course, it's because of you and me. Jesus absorbed the cost of disobedience as God so that you and me could have the blessings of his obedience. That's how the new covenant is possible. That's how it gets made. God pledges himself, gives himself, makes himself vulnerable to us and absorbs the cost of our own disobedience to the covenant so that we could receive the wealth and the blessing and the riches of his obedience. Okay, that's point two, new covenant in particular. Point three, this is short, life under the influence. Because what I really want to dial down, like what I've said thus far is hopefully interesting, hopefully coherent biblical theology. But it's, you know, it's kind of out there, like in, up in space. Paul, in the same passage where he talks about Jesus being cursed for us, also gets very specific in particular about the blessings of the new covenant. Like, here's what I'm really asking. What actually, I want you guys to pay attention to this. What should actually change in your life if you enter this new covenant with God? Like, practically speaking, what becomes different about you and your day-by-day life if you are in this new way of relating to God? Paul gives us a very specific answer to that question. And his answer, in a word, is the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul defines the blessings of the new covenant with one word, well, a phrase, the promise of the Spirit. Because it is the Spirit of God that writes the law of God on our minds. It is the spirit of God that sheds the knowledge of God abroad so that everyone, you know, data analysts and bus drivers and women and men and children everywhere can know the Lord. And it is the spirit that pours the love of God into our hearts so that this idea of a new covenant and God as father and Jesus as brother is not just this idea that we are supposed to somehow find meaningful but becomes really personal and actually helpful in life's minute and dramatic struggles. Life under the influence. The reason why I love that language so much is because that is one of the dominant analogies the Bible uses to describe people who are in the new covenant. What does Paul say? Do not be drunk with wine. They be filled with the Spirit. Why is being drunk with wine such a good analogy for being filled with the Spirit? I will tell you why. When you are drunk with wine, Every single faculty that you have is influenced by the wine. Your mind, your emotions, your will, your body, everything is affected by the alcohol that you have consumed. In the same way, when you're in the new covenant and the spirit is in your life, your mind, your emotions, your will, your body are humanized and beautified and dignified 
by God walking alongside you, by God inhabiting you through the Spirit. So my final word to you is, if you, I mean, I'm assuming everyone here is like, I think I'm in the new covenant. (laughs) But if you are not experientially in the new covenant, if you do not have that type of vibrant relationship with the Spirit of God, then do something about it. Do something about it so that you do know the Lord in the way that's promised in this passage. So that your sins are not remembered in experience. So that you are not crippled by guilt or despair or so convinced of your own inadequacies that you can't imagine how other people would want to be in a meaningful relationship with you. Or that your conscience is too loose and you do find it hard to actually follow up on commitments. That you do lack discipline and you don't make progress on the goals that you legitimately want to make. What does it say, Second Timothy? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, self-control, and a sound mind. It works both ways. It, it relieves guilt and it produces perseverance. Do something about it. If you are lacking a vibrant relationship with the spirit, of course, it's like not in our control, but you got a, a soul, use it, right? Engage with God in such a way that the spirit is more a characteristic part of your life. Okay, I'm just throwing out exhortations at this point. I need to wrap up. Uh, why don't we stand and pray? Gracious God, we thank you for this text and we thank you for the way it imagines a relationship with you that is neither guilt-ridden nor... Um, you know, lackadaisical in a way that's not helpful. Um, But Lord, power and love and self-control and a sound mind, bringing together promise and command, knowing the freedom of walking with you, but not having to walk with you in perfect obedience in order to feel good about ourselves or worthy of love. God, I pray whatever end of the spectrum, those of us who are here and those of us who are watching online are, whether we need to be comforted or frankly, whether we need to be called forth. I pray, Lord, that in the particularities of each person here, you would speak to them and you would give to them that which they need to move forward within your love and grace. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.